Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 25. Hear now God's word. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. His word is good. Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. Um, Paul, beautiful reading today from a lot of Pauline theology. You're going to read around 15 verses of Paul. That's the way to do it. So thank you for that beautiful reading and bringing us into that text. Uh, welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. We're in a new series that we have entitled Messy Church, Faithful God. If you are on the outside of Christianity, uh, this ought to be an apologetic for you, because sometimes you say, look, it's the messiness of Christianity that turns me off. It's the irrationality of Christianity. You know, the Bible has a lot of things that seem irrational and quite messy. 
As you get into the storyline, you see some of the perspective of the gospel, of the good news, of who Jesus says he really is. You know, but if Christianity were hiding anything, if Christianity were mythology, this letter would never be included in the New Testament writings. It is a messed up church. Let's just be honest. If you have read through 1 Corinthians, this is a messed up community. And this is the glory of the letter. That is included in the Christian Bible. There is all sort of dysfunction throughout this letter. And and the writer, the Apostle Paul, is presenting this, right, through the inspiration of God, right, as evidence that God is faithful amidst all of the dysfunction and disunity and breakdown and fracturing of this gospel-centered community that began so well, but after somewhere around three years is doing so poorly. If Christianity were not a true story, if the Bible were a myth, this letter would never be included because you know what it's actually doing? In a lot of ways, it's undermining the credibility of Christians. Those Christians can't even get it together. You know what we ought to be saying? Yes, that's so true. Yes and amen. We don't have it all together, but we serve a God who's faithful. And he's brought somebody even like me into his family. This book is hard. And so over the next, we said, around four and a half months, I want you to come ready, right? This is going to be like, let's let's, let's get ready for something important, relevant, intense, and hopefully that's going to speak to your heart. That's the goal of this time. This is an ancient letter written to uh, an ancient people, probably less people than this room, as I mentioned last week, probably around 100, 150 people who are believers in this city of around 50,000. Right, a Roman city with Greek roots, all sorts of deep culture, new money and innovation right, with old roots and old traditions, this beautiful cosmopolitan thing that's probably a lot like San Diego, right? coastal, beautiful, affluent, lots of people coming to visit, people wanting to live there. But what Paul is showing us is a lot of dysfunction. Let that be an apologetic for the reliability of Christianity. We're not hiding anything. Right, lots of skeletons in the closet. Read through this letter. But God is faithful. So that's part of what I want you to be thinking about as we get into this dysfunction and this disunity. The gospel and unity is what we're going to look at today. Each of the titles over the next 17 weeks is the gospel and something. Gospel is where we started last week, just the good news. This week it's the gospel and unity or the gospel and disunity and breakdown, but we're going to keep it in the positive, looking at the theme of unity. Unity is probably a topic like working out or dieting, a lot easier to talk about it than to live into it and to actually practice it, right? To have shared mind, shared heart, shared affection, shared perspective on the essentials of life, wonderful to talk about, hard to work it into a diverse community. At the end of Jesus' life, right near the end of his ministry, one of the things that he prays for in John chapter 17 is unity. In fact, if we were to go to John 17, verses 20 and 21, near the end of this prayer, Jesus is praying for believers. And then in verse 20, he says, I don't ask only for these who could hear him praying at the moment, these who are present with me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be One. This is Jesus' prayer. He wants the church to be one, just as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you. He roots unity in himself. Our God is triune, but he is one. He goes, just like us, I want this crazy, diverse, messy group of people to be one in the gospel. This is Jesus' prayer. And because this is Jesus' prayer, this means disunity and division is a, if not the, primary target of the enemy. Scotty Smith puts it like this. We realize that until Jesus returns, Satan will continue his assault on our friendships and marriages, churches and families, communities and countries. He will do anything and everything he can to sabotage unity and sow dissension, raise suspicions and erode trust, create disconnect and fertilize bitter roots. Nothing disunifies or nothing breaks down the beauty of a church, of a family, of a workspace, like the toxicity of disunity. I have been so thankful that over the last four years, our church has had the opportunity to be disunified and fractured in so many ways, not because of things necessarily going on here, but because of all that we have faced through COVID, all the justice stuff, all of the political uh, mess, right, that's coming for you, right? We've got some elections coming. You got to prepare your heart now. Part of my job is to prepare you to say, Jesus is my king. There's going to be other leaders, but Jesus is the one who rules all things. I'm going to think well and be a citizen who is invested well. But at the same time, there's been a lot coming at us. I've been grateful for unity in this church. And we want to pray that that continues. But you think about your life. You think about your marriage. You think about your coworkers. You think about your relationship maybe to your own children. There are all sorts of opportunities for fissures and fractions. What does the Bible have to say about unity? Easy to talk about, right? Hard to live into it. Three things I want to walk you through from this part of the letter. Number one, love. Number two, story. Number three, alignment, right? So number one, Love, the order of the love matters. Number two, story, the plot line really matters. And number three, alignment, your heart really matters. So let me get to part one, love, and the order matters. I'm going to bring your attention to actually verse 11. I was going to read from verse 10. You can look at that if you want to. But verse 11, verse 11 says this. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. All right. Quarrels among you. He's going to break it down. In some ways, the whole letter is about Paul going into the different fractures and fissions in this community. But he's going to address a few things right here at the beginning. So verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to James chapter 4, verse 1. All right, or write this down. James 4.1. Unity, disunity, fighting, arguing, lack of peace and shalom, big topic. The Bible has a specific way to address it. We won't be able to be comprehensive, but James 4.1 is a great place to begin. Here's what he writes at the beginning of that chapter. James asks this question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I love that question. You ever been in a fight lately? I'm assuming yes. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, 
so you fight and you quarrel. Listen, I know your inner lawyer is like rising up right now. I get it. So what James is saying in chapter 4, he's going, so he or she or they or my boss or my incompetent coworker, they, you want to say, are the problem? What James is saying is, yes, that's probably part of the issue, and it's surfacing what's going on underneath the surface. But his answer to what causes fights, what causes quarrels, is simply this, your passions, your desires, or your loves are at war within you. And this is the cause of the friction and the fighting in relationships and the breakdown in community. Your passions, your desires, your loves are at war inside of your life, inside of your heart, mind, and soul. You can see it in some pretty trivial examples of like a little one, a little kid who's sitting in a high chair. The little one doesn't want to eat what you put in front of them. Who wants to eat mashed peas anyway? They see a cupcake across the room. You try to enforce the eating rules, vegetables before dessert. But they, I've seen this, right? They take the plate and they toss it out of anger. Or you got two siblings who want to watch a TV show, but of course World War III is going to break out because they can't agree on what TV show to watch. That never happens at my home, of course, right? Pastor's family's perfect, right? We never have those issues, but you can assume that thing would happen. Those sorts of things happen in families. Or what about a husband and wife? All of a sudden, they can't see eye to eye. Things are beginning to break down. What's going on? I would press in each of those three examples, even from the little one who tosses something so primal, right, to the children who can't agree on a television show, to a husband and wife who've been getting along but now can't, Part of the issue, or let's just say maybe the primary issue, is that there are desires, passions, and loves at war inside. And that is driving behavior. The Bible says that you live from your loves. What I love, I do. What I have a passion for drives what I'm going to engage in today. Think about the practicality of that. You live from your heart. And so James is saying that you've got two people or people within a community whose passions are at war within them. They're driving certain behaviors and certain characteristics, and those things are colliding with one another. All he's asking at the beginning of that letter in the book of James is, can you see it? Or can you see that happening in your own life and in your own heart? The Corinthian community has its own source of tension. So let's go into maybe how this is playing out in their world. Look at verse 11 again. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. He gets specific. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is another name for the apostle Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. After Paul planted the church in Corinth, we're told in Acts chapter 18 that a gifted Christian communicator from Alexandria, Egypt, his name is Apollos, he comes in behind the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is planting more churches. He starts Corinth. He spends 18 months there. That's a long time. He moves on to the city of Ephesus. He begins to plant over there. He's now writing to Corinth from Ephesus. He's glad that this man by the name of Apollos that he has come in, he has become a Christian. He's Egyptian. He is a gifted man. He's an orator with flair, 
Rhetoric was big in these Roman cities. So this guy comes in, and he's got some sort of background in public speaking. I don't know if they like what he wears or if they like what he drives. Probably the most up-to-date chariot of the times. I mean, this guy comes in. He must have some sort of charisma because Apollos, he has gotten a following. People are beginning to say, I'm on Team Apollos. And if you're not on Team Apollos, then you're not with us. So you start to see these associations and this patronage and these factions. What happens, of course, is that Apollos isn't the only teacher who comes into town. Cephas or Peter, who's, of course, one of the 12, one of Jesus' closest friends, the text tells us that most likely he also visited Corinth. Or, scholars say, somebody who represented Team Peter comes to town. People go, I like Peter. Paul was a little boring. Did you know that when Paul preached, dude was long-winded? Okay, I have been guilty of that as well. All right, true confessions. He's so long-winded, some guy falls asleep in the window and he dies. He falls out of the second-story window, right? This is not a good part of your resume as a preacher. Oh, the dude died when you were preaching. How long were you preaching for? A long time. It was past midnight. I could not land the plane. I'm so sorry. Paul goes up, thankfully resuscitates and resurrects this guy. Crazy story. But people are like, I don't know if I love Paul. Like, I'm on Team Apollos. And some people are like, I'm on, I'm on Team Peter. And some people are like, no, no, I'm OG. I'm with, I'm with Paul himself. Like, he's the guy who planted this church. I'm sticking with Paul. And then there's some people who are like, I don't need tradition. I love these folks. I don't need tradition. I don't need community. I don't need a mediator. I'm going to the source. I'm team Jesus, right? We still got those people today. I don't need the church. I don't need those teachers, right? I just go to the scripture. I'm a Jesus type of Christian. This is happening in Corinth. All of this factionalism, all of this breakdown, all of this patronage, what's behind that is so simplistic. You do it and I do it. We attach ourselves to somebody as a coping mechanism to make up for our insecure identities. I don't really know who I am, but that person seems to be substantial. I like what they're bringing to the table. I'm going to begin to affiliate with that person. And when you affiliate with a certain type of person or a movement, what you inevitably have to do is discriminate against the people who aren't on your team, who don't think like you, look like you, behave like you, perform like you. So you have associated with a certain movement and a certain idea, but that means you have to stand against other people who aren't on your team. And that's what's happening here. He's going, this used to be a Jesus gospel-centered community. We've had some successful, some charismatic leaders come in who can present the gospel in ways that have grabbed your heart, but now you guys are so divided. You've got some people over here standing against the Peter people. Some people over here standing against the Apollos people. Some people saying, I don't need any of that. I'm going to the source. I just need Jesus. Cults of personality. We attach ourselves to other people's gifts and accomplishments. The problem is that when we tether ourselves to something for a sense of identity, you stand against. But the bigger problem is this is where we attach our identities to these people and priorities as the first part of our affection, as the first part of our loves. Christianity is not against associations. We recognize that God has gifted all sorts of people. It's okay to be a fan, man. Y'all know I am a, should I say it? I'm a believer, all right? Like, I love me some Justin Bieber. It's okay to have your people that you associate with. It's all right. 
What the text is telling us, though, is that becomes first primary. The thing that you attach your identity to, he goes, that's starting to become an issue of passion, loves, and desires. Why is the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me? And then when Jesus is pressed about what is the greatest commandment in the law, you know what he says? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The Bible in the beginning, when it's talking about what it means to live a moral and ethical life, says, you know what? Your love's matter. Your affections, are they ordered well? Are they ordered rightly? Jesus summarizes all of Christianity when he's pressed with what's the first and great commandment. He goes, you know what it is? Love God first. He adds a second commandment. Love other people like you love yourself. That's the second great commandment. But the first one is love God first. God cares about the order of your affections because a disordered affection leads to disunity, factionalism, and breakdown. What's going on in your breakdown? What's going on in your marriage? What's going on in your heart? He goes, is it not that there are passions at war within you? Those passions are about your loves. It's paying attention to what you love and how you, what you love first is so important. Can I say this too, especially if you're outside of Christianity? Some of you say, this is why I have a problem with Christianity, because we're serving a God who seems to be selfish, a God who says, love me, only me, love me first. God wants the best and the first, the first fruits of your life and affection. This is why I actually am not attracted to Christianity. But can I say that God is not insecure, he's not foolish, and he's not outdated. What he knows is, is if you put anything at the center of your life that's not him, it leads to breakdown. Two very clear examples. Number one, Cain and Abel in the very beginning, the first murder, their brothers. What happens in Cain's life that he would take Abel's life? Just go back and read the first couple of chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. What happened? My man is addicted to approval. Approval has become primary in his life. You know what it leads to? Complete breakdown in community such that the first murder takes place between two brothers. He no longer loves God first. He loves what other people think about him first, and it leads to total breakdown. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're both praying. The tax collector's on his knees. He's beating his chest saying, God, I don't deserve anything. The Pharisee's standing there saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. What happened to this guy, right? The Pharisee, what's going on in his world is that he loves first what people think about him. He loves piety. He loves the self-expression of religiosity. He loves to be known as the religious guy in the room. He has also been addicted to self-control, right, of his own narrative. And what that leads to is not accepting the person who's different from him by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. And loves is all over this story. And look at what Paul says about this division and patronage. Go to verse 12. This is Paul's reaction to all of the breakdown. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. You ready? Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I kind of love this like little parentheses here, verse 16. Yes, he's like, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. You can kind of imagine Paul's kind of like mumbling and talking out loud, and his scribe is writing things down, and Paul's like, you shouldn't have written that. All right, just go ahead and send it. Fine, it's become part of the inspired word of God, right? <laughs> Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, he focuses the Corinthian church back on Jesus Christ. What he says is, did Paul lay down his life for you? You're associating so much with Paul building an identity on him. Did Peter give himself as a substitute to forgive you of your sin and to redeem you of everything you've ever done, right? to release your shame and to give you a new hope and a new future. Did Peter do that? I know you like Apollos. You like his style. Has he redeemed you, given you ingredients for new life and resurrection? Is any of that baked into any of those things? Then why are you building an identity and a storyline around them? It's as if your parents were billionaires, but you're standing on the street corner bumming a couple of bucks. Why would you do this? Why would you build an identity on anyone or anything or any association other than Jesus Christ? It has broken everything. He's calling them back. Right. Calling them back. Love, the order matters. Secondly, story, the plot line matters too, right? Story. Jeff talked about story, the significance of it. Got some gamers in the room, maybe some like uh, some electronic games, uh, board games. Our family's more of a board game family at this point. I've got 13-year-old and 11-year-old. They are putting the pressure on me, right? I have held out this Christmas. We'll see how long it lasts for what they're going to get from like a gaming system. But at this point, board games are good, old-fashioned, not a big deal. I like to read the instructions on the board game. I still haven't figured out Catan. We've had it for like a year. We need some help, all right? This is an intercession moment. We cannot figure this out on our own. Watch lots of YouTube videos. We need to come to your house and play Catan. But this game was much simpler. I read the instructions because you guess what? In order to play the game well, you got to know the plot line. You got to know the storyline of the game. What are we trying to accomplish? What are those pieces for? What does it help you do and not do? How do I take out these people? Man, I'm a competitor. Like, I don't care how old my kids are. I'm taking them down. Right, we want to compete. I got to know the storyline. What's the point of this game? It's a very apt metaphor for life. If you do not know the point of the game, you're not going to be able to play it well. You got to know the storyline. You don't have to make it up. Right? Secularism says the storyline is on your shoulders, your life. You figure it out. Christianity says you are made with such purpose. God has a storyline. You know what a Christian is? A Christian is simply somebody who says, I am submitting my life to the plot line and the storyline that God has laid out for me. I believe he's a good narrator. And I want to put my life within his storyline, and trust him with my future. That's what it means to be a Christian. And at this point in the letter, man, Paul is writing because he knows that the Corinthians are buckling under the pressure of assimilation. He's, he can see that they are being hard-pressed by a Corinthian or a Roman storyline 
a secular storyline more than the storyline of the gospel, more than a kingdom storyline. So he sees that the gospel is getting lost, it's getting diluted, but really probably more accurately, it's getting demoted in their community. And so he zeroes in on two aspects of the secular storyline that the Corinthians are living into, but they cannot see, all right? So he's going to zero in on two aspects. Verse 20. Verse 20 says, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Verse 22, very important for I'm going to take you. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Two storylines. The Greeks look for wisdom. I'm going to start there. And the Jews look for a sign. When Paul says that the Greeks look for wisdom, he's not referencing the biblical or the Christian understanding of wisdom as the art of skillful living aligned with the things of God. That's not what he's talking about here. Right? For the Greeks, wisdom was more about the cultural currency of intellectual knowledge, new ideas, cutting-edge philosophies, worldviews that are going to be debated by the best rhetoricians around. You know that Athens was famous for its debate, Mars Hill. Corinth has this influence too. Bring the ideas and let us think deeply about them. And the point of the idea, the reason that you might affiliate with an Apollos or a Cephas, right? The reason you might lean in their direction is because they have been so compelling in presenting the worldview, the new idea. It seems as if those people have power. They've got clout. They've got a following. They've got people coming behind them who want their autograph. They are associating power and prestige with knowledge. He goes, that's what the Greeks want. That's what they're after. It's, an, it's a knowledge economy. For us as well, there's tremendous pressure to be informed, to be politically correct, to make a contribution in a meaningful way, to add to the conversation. The Greek world and our world values information and knowledge and reason and science and ideas, all good things. Christianity is not against those things in any way. But Paul is saying this is a very specific storyline. The Greeks look for wisdom. Then he adds a second part. The Jews then demand signs. What does that mean? Well, we have an example of this from Matthew 12, verse 38. This is what we read. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, talking to Jesus, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. How long was Jonah in the whale? Jonah's in the whale for three days. Jesus says, you want to see a real sign? I'm about to give up my life for three days. They couldn't make the association at the time, but the point still stands. See, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they hear that he's got clout, that he's got a following, that he's saying something specific, that he's actually maybe even undermining the religious community. <clears throat> that's dominant in Jerusalem, they come and they say, what right do you have to say such things, to teach such things? Show us a sign we might believe if you show us the right one. 
But they're putting, them, they're putting themselves in the position of authority over Jesus. We are going to be the ones to determine if you have the right to teach, preach, and heal in the way that you're doing. We are the ones who are going to determine if you are successful enough. What they're actually saying when they say, show me a sign is, be successful. Be a winner. Man, show us something good. If you show us something good, we'll give you the thumbs up. But if you don't, we're going to push you to the side. Looking for success. Mary Bell, who's a consultant to many high-level executives, she says, achievement is the alcohol of our time. The more you achieve, the more you feel dynamite. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. So the Greeks, and they're looking for wisdom. They're looking for intellectual currency. They're looking for good ideas and worldviews that gives them power, that gives them clout, that gives them influence. The Jews are looking for signs. They're looking for success. They're looking for achievement. They are looking for a work ethic, right, that can build up your clout and success. Nothing inherently wrong with it, but it cannot save your soul. It cannot redeem your sin. Listen, Christianity is not against thoughtful engagement with culture. Worldview matters. Success is okay. Achievement is not anti-gospel. What it is, though, it becomes problematic when it becomes first in your life and first in your heart. But it also becomes the dominant storyline of your world. And Paul is saying, look, I get it. The world is intoxicated with those two things, the knowledge economy and the success economy. And this has been baked into the Corinthian church. He goes, I understand why you're wanting to live that way. He said, but the gospel itself, in light of Greek wisdom and Jewish signs and success, in light of all of that, he even admits the gospel itself is absolute madness. Listen to this quote by Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, okay, but a historian. In light of Greek wisdom, Jewish signs, the gospel itself being madness. Tom Holland, he says that a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god, could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. The ultimate offensiveness, though, was to one particular people, Jesus' own. The Jews, unlike their rulers, did not believe that a man might become a god. They believed that there was only one almighty, eternal deity, creator of the heavens and the earth. He was worshipped by them as the most high god. Empires were his to order, mountains to melt like wax. That such a God of all gods might have had a son and that this son, suffering the fate of a slave, might have been tortured to death on a cross were claims as stupefying as they were to most Jews repellent. No more shocking reversal of their most devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemy, it was madness. And here's Paul's point. Knowledge is good. Worldview and thoughtful engagement with philosophy, awesome. He goes, but none of that stuff is going to give you an understanding of who this God really is because the gospel itself is madness. Nobody would imagine this is the way to God. You're going to assume that it's through religiosity, through its, that it's through success and achievement. And he goes, but this story has been told to your community that says that the Son of God was slain outside of the city, barbarically murdered for you. 
That's the wisdom of God. Anybody going to find that on their own? Anybody going to make that the plot line of their life on your own? He goes, there's no way. There's no way. It's absolute madness that you would build a life around this storyline. A crucified, crushed, humiliated Savior is absolute foolishness to those outside of Christ. But to those on the inside, it is the power of God. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen closely. Right there in verse 18, Paul makes clear the ultimate plot line of the world. And it has nothing to do with the Romans versus the barbarians or the Jews versus the Gentiles or the East versus the West or the Republican versus the Democrat or a black versus the whites or the rich versus the poor or the haves versus the have-nots. In God's storyline, everything is divided into those who are perishing and those who are being saved. That's the plot line of the world. That is the plot line of our generation and every generation. This is the foolishness to those who are perishing. That doesn't make sense, but to those who are being saved, you understand what God has done in Jesus Christ. To give up his life, to sacrifice the one and only son, to bring you into a story of redemption. Nobody's going to think of this story, but it has been announced. The world gets pomp, the world gets flash, the world gets lots of different mediums to present the gospel. You know what Christians get? Preaching. That's what Paul says. Preaching. And then not with eloquence, so that the person who is speaking gets the glory. But for the foolishness of the gospel, man, the world gets all the mediums, we get preaching, but it is sufficient to change your life because the cross transforms everything. This is the glory of Christianity. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let me take you to this last part, just a couple of practicalities, and we'll close. Love, the order matters. Number two, story, the plot line matters. Do you believe the story? And number three, my heart, right? Alignment of my heart is where this begins to be lived out. The heart matters. So look at verse 10. Verse 10 says to this Christian group, Paul addressing them at the beginning, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Point of clarity, he's not asking for uniformity. The Christian church is so diverse, so distinct, different generations, different cultures, different continents. The church in China, the church in South America, the church in North America, radically different. But Jesus prayed that we would be united around one thing called the gospel. And Paul is calling them, he's calling you, he's calling me back into alignment. We will never be able to live with true unity unless Jesus is the center of of your heart and your affections. This is why Paul says, agree with one another in what you say. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. Let me just ask this question as I close. How? Or how do I do this? How do I agree with one another 
if they don't think like me? How would I live in peace and harmony with somebody whose values are so different and distinct from me? How do I do this? What does unity look like? Number one, you have to agree to make the gospel the centerpiece of your life. But how? Number one, you critically examine your loves. Critically examine your loves. Do not get swept up into a storyline where you are not paying attention to the difference between King Caesar and King Jesus, right? Critically look at your loves. Related to that, as I've already mentioned, critically observe the plot line and narrative of your life. What storyline are you living into and out of? Where does your purpose come from? Where's the meaning? What's the generator of your affection? What's going on in your world? Number three, connect yourself to a few people who care deeply about going in God's direction, not the cultural direction. This means that you begin to practice following Jesus. Practice will never make perfect. You've never been asked to be perfect. The church is messy, man, but God is faithful. Why is this church emphasizing spiritual formation? It's because we want to point your loves in the direction and give you a storyline that will shape all of it. This is what it means to be a church. This is why we are particularizing. We're not becoming independent so we can make our own choices. We're becoming independent so we can plant another church. And that church can plant another church. And we can see gospel communities sprouting up so that people can join with the plot line of the gospel. Man, I want you to get excited about that. I want you to think deeply about your plot line, your storyline, what you're believing, and bring the gospel in. We'd love to help you do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, one of the reasons I think that you prayed for unity for the church in John 17 was because of the power of the witness of a diverse group of people being united around Jesus Christ. All of us have been to a concert in some form or fashion where there are people driving up in very expensive cars and people who may have bummed a ride. People on one end of the socioeconomic spectrum and people who are at the very opposite all coming into the same stadium with a love for a band and a love for some songs and two hours to be united in singing. But that group of people are so different. They don't eat the same foods. They don't think the same way. But they have been united around music for a short amount of time. That is your vision for your church. That we would be united around Jesus. Not some of the time, but all of the time. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among us? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, your loves are at war within you? Thank you for that honesty. That's true. I am a bundle of conflict. But you are gracious to begin unraveling that mess in my heart and my life. Lord, in this room we've got Lots of broken relationships between parents and kids, between mom and dad, husband and wife, friends who no longer speak. Jesus, restore. So often we associate our lives with the wrong things. Paul says, did I lay my life down for you? Can your paycheck save you? Or the gospel is the good news. We want to associate with you. 
We thank you for your love. We thank you for the uniting spirit. We repent of those things that have divided us. May the gospel be seen as beautiful. Pull us together, Jesus, in your name.